0: you will see to another episode of The Zag. Eric Rousseau here. Thanks for tuning in. Excited to be joined by a 2020 NLC Twin Cities fellow. Nani Rue is here. We'll catch up with him. He's been on the ground in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities area. We'll hear what things are like out there right now as we go into the first weekend in June. He's also an educator. We'll catch up with him as the school year wraps up. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to it. All right, so let's maybe start with some comparison. What is life on the ground in terms of protests, what you're seeing when you're out and about in your city, compared to what someone say like me in LA is seeing on the news?
1: Yeah, um, I think I'll preface by saying that um, I'm a uh, Sri Lankan American. Um, I was born and raised in Japan, so I come from the perspective of a non-black POC here. Um, I also live in North Minneapolis, which is predominantly a black suburb, or sorry, black portion of Minneapolis um historically it's been redline um i would say probably the two biggest and i'm sorry i got some motorcycles outside that's fine yeah my bad um yeah the two biggest claims going around i think um that's kind of counter to what you're seeing nationally is i think uh there's been a lot of gaslighting from our governor and our mayor about uh what real minnesotans are doing quote-unquote um it's been the idea that the people protesting um, or looting or rioting whatever it may be aren't actually from minnesota um or aren't reflective of minnesota as a whole and i think that just speaks to just the amount of insidious of white supremacy that we have in the state um i think minnesotans get the rep of uh, wanting to be constantly just the exterior of being very nice so uh, we get the minnesota nice label quite a bit um And I think it's a lot of face-saving that's happening over here. Um, The truth is, like, yeah, there have been people from within our city um, causing riots, causing the violence, and causing the arson. Um, I do also want to point out that there's been definitely a glut of white supremacists that have come through our neighborhoods and causing fires, uh, leaving incendiary devices in trash cans and alleyways. Um, Yeah, I'm actually part of the North Minneapolis uh, defense uh, group that we've created. We have a Slack channel, and we just make sure... Because the police response has been so poor, um, we've teamed up as a neighborhood to just make sure everything is okay. Um, yeah, and <laughs> just from the from the ground perspective, I mean, the fear is real. Um, I think tensions have definitely teamed down a little bit over the last couple of days, but it's it, things are still very tense.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. If you had felt any any market shift in, in, in tone or feeling, it doesn't sound like necessarily that's happening quite yet. And is it a case where there's really now protests every day in all parts of the city? Is it concentrated in, in downtown area? How would you describe sort of what people's choices are if they want to take action right now?
1: Yeah, so we had a curfew in, uh, enacted for the last three days. Um, it was just lifted yesterday. So the protests have generally been around 38th in Chicago, which actually is only three or four blocks from where I teach. Um, this is where George Floyd was murdered. Otherwise, we've had protests in the government center downtown at the governor's mansion in St. Paul. Um, several of the police uh, officers involved, their houses are around the suburbs, so there's been protests there. Um, I'm actually heading to a defund the Minneapolis Police Department protest right after this.
0: So, And so when you hear that phrase, defund the police, what does that mean to you tactically in the short term? Or do you feel like it'll end up being more of a this kind of general phrase that's used as a call to action in the long term?
1: Yeah, I think if you trace the history of the Minneapolis Police Department, it's one that's obviously rooted in racism. Um, there's a really great published article from a group called MPD One Hundred and Fifty. So that's Minneapolis Police Department One Hundred and Fifty. Uh, they released a comprehensive performance review in two thousand seventeen, I believe, um, just tracing the history and the structures of the Minneapolis Police Department and how they basically continue to mask all the racism that's happening around the Twin Cities. Um, so the defund the move, the defund the police movement that's being pushed right now is to really start to look at, and I think LAPD did this, the, the, the Los Angeles government did the same thing as well, but to really move all the money that's being funneled towards the NPD, towards community policing or community resources to really address root issues.
0: And then I know this week too, there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm and excitement around the eight can't wait. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you know, put out essentially by uh, some former TFA people actually, uh, but mm-hmm. very clear steps that, our research-based that cities can do with their police forces to significantly reduce police violence. So things like banning uh, certain holds, uh, mm-hmm. things around uh, reporting and uh, transparency into personnel records, those kind of things. Do you feel that right now people are, are at that level of specificity with what they want to see next? Or are we still in a place where um, it's just the entire sentiment is about being heard, being seen? We've actually had a
1: uh... Council members, you know, calling for structural change for years on end. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar, but, you know, this isn't police brutality is nothing new in Minneapolis and the Twin Cities. I mean, I live about four blocks away from the fourth precinct in North Minneapolis. That's where Jamar Clark was killed in 2016. That sparked massive protests and an occupation of the precinct. Um, Philando Castillo was shot and killed in his car while the the murder was live streamed. That was right near the St. Paul campus at the University of Minnesota. So we've had, I think, flashpoints over the last couple of years to really push for change. I would say the, the rhetoric seems a little bit different now. I think you're seeing a lot of centrist and maybe left-leaning politicians kind of be a bit more vocal about what's happening. I think with the national optics, actually the international optics of what's happening right now, it's hard not to be silent about it, but we're seeing clear demands from council members. Um... I always refer back to the Black Visions Collective, which is an amazing organization. Mm-hmm. The very key, you know, four steps of what they're looking for. So, I believe number one was not to increase police budgets for or, for police departments. Number two was to so we have a forty five million dollar proposed budget cut from MPD, and using that to respond to the COVID nineteen shortfalls that we've had here. Mm-hmm. Number three would be to um, protect and expand current community led health and safety programs instead of funding the police. And then number four was to do everything in power to compel NPD and all law enforcement agencies to immediately uh, seize enacting violence on community members. So clear demands all throughout, I think. Um, the course is getting stronger and stronger. So it's, you know, that I, there was a little bit of levity that I saw with uh, it was a tweet saying, who would have thought the revolution would start in Minneapolis besides from
0: Prince? So <laughs> that sounds about right. When we come when we come back, we'll continue this conversation and talk a little bit more about life in schools and what students are saying about the experiences that are happening to them and what's happening in the city right now in Minneapolis and across the country. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Zag. We'll be right back. So share with folks uh, what and where you teach.
1: Yeah, so I teach at Hiawatha College Prep uh, Kingfield, which is in uh, South Minneapolis. I teach predominantly Latinx and uh, East African students.
0: And so when the events went down, what was their comfort in talking with you about it? What kind of things did they share with you about it?
1: Yeah, so since most of our families are actually clustered around the area where the murder actually happened, so 38th in Chicago, uh, this is a real, real issue for all of our students. Um the push that we've been really doing is how do we address the real concerns that families have right now with the uh, in access to uh, grocery stores and everything that's closed down while balancing, I think, and really addressing a lot of the anti-blackness that that is present in Minneapolis. Um, I think it's a very common uh, statistic that you might see now these days, but Minneapolis, Minnesota as a whole has one of the 49th or 50th ranked uh, disparity in terms of Educational achievement by all races, actually. So, indigenous uh, students, black students, Asian American students, Latinx students, all across the board, we have a huge disparity.
0: And when you think about curriculum changes, things you could actually do to teach students, especially white students, uh, yeah. what is the historical uh, reality of this country when it comes to injustice and white supremacy? Like, what, with your teacher brain, do you think through mm-hmm. in terms of how to create a curriculum that would actually? lead to different attitudes and different behaviors most importantly.
1: Right. I think and I mentioned it prior to uh, we have a we have a history of racism in the state. Um, I think even before addressing curriculum issues, I think we need to look really deeply at what are from from the teacher perspective, what we're doing. Um, a lot of the racism is rare is rarely checked unfortunately. Um, and we have a overwhelmingly white teacher population teaching and overwhelmingly, right student body that's of students of color here in the Twin Cities. So unless we're willing to make a structural change and actually address uh, white supremacy as a whole, um, and not as like an ancillary thing that you'd tack on to the end of your summer PD, you know, like here's equity one-on-one, right? Um, I believe in like a our schools need to be built on a foundation of liberation and not just equity. Um, we've been pushing for uh, really just and I, th- and I think the frustrating part is, you know, white staff members might feel like this is all brand new to them, right? But for folks of color here in the Twin Cities, this is a reality. And for students of color, that's the reality. So when we reconvene for the summer, we're going to have to have a really hard look at what uh, curriculum looks like um, for students, but also for teachers as well, specifically on topics of anti-colonialism, anti-blackness, and everything that basically fundamentally is what our school systems are built on.
0: And then, what's the structure in the state, or maybe even at the city level, to make wholesale curriculum changes? Is there like a state board that has to approve those? I think of you know some of the crazy headlines you'll see out of, say, like Texas, right, where you have these these random boards who are just doing bananas things when it comes to what's going to show up in a textbook or what has to be taken out. Is that the same thing is true for y'all out there?
1: Uh, We have a bit more flexibility. Uh, (laughs) I teach at a charter school. I have. You know, I, mean, I go into the politics of charter schools and uh, <laughs> another, another topic, but uh, we do have some leeway on what we are able to teach. Um, everything ultimately falls down to the, the department of it, obviously, but um, Minneapolis is, quote unquote, a progressive city. So I'm hoping that the chorus of voices that are being amplified right now will really push for that change.
0: Yeah. Hey, last thing. So you're a 2020 NLC fellow. This has definitely yeah. been the strangest of years to be a fellow. <laughs> <understand> um, it. <laughs> what was it like to make the switch from in-person to virtual?
1: I think our our uh, cohort is very activist oriented, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So we have people from all walks of life um, within different government spheres and activist spheres. And the shift over, I think we had a very real conversation on what that was going to look like before it happened. Um, I think The whole dynamic of it changed, obviously, after the murder of George Floyd and and the resulting protests and the movement. Um, But I found such strong connection with people in my cohort um, pushing together to really push for change. And um, unfortunately, my capstone had to take a little bit of a backseat, but I'm I'm hoping to really re-examine that. I was originally examining how the plight of students and families who I teach, most of them are undocumented um, what COVID-19 has done for them and just to amplify the voices of students specifically. So I was doing student interviews and stuff like that to just see how they were doing. But yeah, yeah I think it's this, uh, these last couple weeks have definitely given me a step with a lot of my cohort members to really push for structural uh, policy change. So we got a Slack channel going, we have a group app or we have a group me going on, just uh, concrete action steps that we can take and how to be more visible.
0: Yeah. And, you know, because we are in the mode of recruitment for 2021 fellows and still a little yeah. bit hard to know what the actual program will look like, depending on how close or how far away we have to be from each other. What would you want people to consider uh, for themselves if they are wondering if NLC is the right thing for them? What would you want them to prioritize in their decision making process?
1: I think NLC has been very adaptive. As I know my core has been especially. Yeah. And if the the physical distancing is going to be like a limitation for you, I you know, challenge you to think a little bit deeper as well, because we've adapted and we've continued to give great programming, We continue to receive great programming. um, And I feel stronger as a person because of it. So I think definitely challenges coming up, but this is a prime time to really get involved with uh, just progressive leadership. And I highly encourage people to really look into the program.
0: Yeah. Sounds good. Listen, thanks so much for coming on. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. You can find that application for the 2021 Fellows Program at newleaderscouncil.org. It's due a little bit later in August, early September, so plenty of time, but definitely check it out and get prepared. And if you want to hear more about what alums are doing across the country and current fellows as well, make sure to download and subscribe to The Zag. You can find all episodes at all the places you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, they're all there. Check them out. And until next time, we'll catch you soon.